Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's episode, we have someone I have been looking forward to talking with uh, since we started this podcast, Sean Covey. For those of you, and I hope there's not many out there who are listening right now uh, who don't know who Sean Covey is, but in case you don't, I'll share a little bit about his bio and tell you why you should keep listening. But Sean's the, the current president of Franklin Covey Education, and he's led the development of many of Franklin Covey's organizational offerings from focus to leadership to something we talk about in great deal today, the four disciplines of execution, the leader in me process, and the seven habits of highly effective people. He also sees all of our uh, international partnerships of over 140 countries worldwide. Uh, he's written several books. Um, that have been New York Times bestsellers, including the six most important decisions you'll ever make, the seven habits of happy kids, which is awesome. My kids love it. Uh, the seven habits of highly effective teens, which translated in over 20 languages and sold 4 million copies worldwide. Um, today's conversation is just awesome. Uh, if you're, if you want to know a little bit more about Sean, we definitely take a deep dive. We dive into what it was like to grow up, uh, under Dr. Covey as his, being his father. We, we talk about the origins of the four disciplines of execution and how it can help schools and districts get better results. Uh, we talked about the importance of accountability when it comes to leadership. And then finally, after all this insight you'll gain, uh, if you wanna stick around towards the end, I had one of uh, Sean's sons email me a few questions to ask them to put them on the spot. And so they're pretty funny stories. So if you want to get a chance to learn about Sean and his family, I definitely would say stick around to the end. It's It was one of the more enjoyable parts of our conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to let you guys hear our interview. Again, uh, the 40, 50 minutes with Sean was just awesome. So uh, let's go. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us today. Hey, good to be with you, Dustin. Um, so I think, as you know, uh, after, you know, several episodes now, there's one question that we start every podcast with, um, and instead of who are you and what do you do, we ask, uh -huh. who are you and why do you love what you do? So could you answer that for us? Yeah. Well, um, I'm Sean Covey. I'm a husband, father, um, work at Franklin Covey education. Love it. I've done a lot of different things in my life. I love working in education because, uh, these kids are amazing. And um, I think that there's an identity theft going on in the world where, where kids are not remembering who they are and the, the great uh, gifts and potential they have inside and feel like a leader in me and everything we're doing and everything I, I write about is all about helping uh, people and especially youth achieve their worth and potential and to realize what they've got. So that's what I love. It's awesome. I think anybody who spent more than a, uh, a minute with you knows that deep down in your soul, you have a conviction for that and you have a conviction for kids. Um, where did that start for you? Did that start early? Did that start growing up in a household with Dr. Stephen Covey? Where did that, where did that kick off for you? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, family's always, always been a big part of my life, Dustin. And, um, you know, I was close to my parents and close to my siblings and uh, I've been around you know, I was one of nine kids, so there's always younger brothers and sisters. And I played football in college. I was a quarterback. <laughs> I have the brain damage to prove it. <laughs> I was a quarterback at BYU. And um, I, you know, once I got the quarterback job, I started being asked to speak in high schools and junior highs like crazy. I mean, probably like two or 300 times over a period of two or three years. And I, so I started working a lot with kids and teens and 
uh, really started connecting with them and realizing the challenges they were going through and such, you know, so that was part of it. Um, so I, I think it just came from my family and came from my football experience and all the opportunities I had to, to work with kids. So, I mean, growing up in the household you grew up in, I can imagine you know, there can be some unique pressure, at least from the outside, assuming in, do you feel yeah. like uh, there was some unique pressure uh, just growing up in the household and growing up under Dr. Covey who created the seven habits? Well, <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't feel that at all. I, Cause when I was a teenager, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't well-known or that famous or anything. And I, as a teenager, I thought he was kind of great dad. I loved him, but he was kind of weird. <laughs> you know, he, he had the worst sense of fashion you've ever seen. Um, you know, he'd wear a dress shirt with velour pants and like an ace hardware cap. <laughs> and so, you know, and he was just, uh, he was funny and would try to embarrass me all the time. So I never felt bad. I only, I felt a lot of affirmation from, from my dad and not pressure, but rather, Hey, you've got greatness in you and you can do this. And he was very affirming. And like any family we had with, imagine being raised with nine, you know, nine kids, eight siblings, we had all kinds of challenges and ups and downs and fights. And, but uh, all things considered, he, he was really good at, affirming us and uh, being there for us and my mom too I'm lucky to have a good mom and dad you know um, yeah what was your so other than the fashion choices uh what was your your favorite um takeaway or story from your dad growing up um well I think you know he I don't know if he'd call it a story but I one thing I loved watching him do is he was no respecter of persons. Um, he treated everybody exactly the same. So I'd go with him and we'd go to the, you know, he was completely bald, but he'd go get haircuts anyway, <laughs> as if he had hair. <laughs> he had a little bit. <laughs> and Gary, the barber, his name was Gary. And he was like best friends with Gary. And he treated him so well. And I'd watch and he'd say, hey, Gary, he's always trying to do things for him. Like, He'd make bets and hope he would lose so that he would, and he'd send Gary to Hawaii, you know, on his dime. Um, and then I'd see him work with him. And then I'd see him work with a, the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. And there was no difference between how he treated the two. In fact, he'd always come back from these amazing trips where he'd go and train, you know, um, a president, you know, so Bill Clinton, he went and trained him for three days. He, trained uh, um, the, the head, the president of Mexico and his whole cabinet. And he'd, he'd trained these big people. And I'd always come back and say, dad, how was it? What was it like being with that kind of wealth? <laughs> and he'd always say, ah, well, they're just, they're so messed up. <laughs> or, you know, this person, they have lots of family problems and they always talk business first. And they talk about their relationship with their teenage daughter and how it's not working. And they're just people too, Sean. They're no different than you and I. So I, I just grew up with that uh, mentality. You treat everyone the same. And, and he, he always felt that the most sacred thing in the world is not an idea or theory or this or that. It's the person sitting next to you, mm. you know, and he had such respect for every, every person and saw greatness in people and treated everybody the same. So that was 
maybe one of the great lessons I can remember from my father. And how has that played out for you in your career? Like, you know, one of the things that I see is, you know, that lesson of every, every kid, they're all, every person is a person, like they're all, no matter if they're the president, CEO, they're all people just like us. Yeah. How do you think you've benefited from having that lesson early in life? Yeah. Well, just with my own kids, uh, one thing is, you know, I've got, I've got a few, a few kids. I've got three at home right now, a few older, got some grandkids and just seeing your kids go through their own struggles and seeing through it. And he, my dad used to always say, Hey, don't worry about their software. They might be playing a program right now that makes them seem insufficient or early immature. They've got really good hardware. <laughs> the software is easy to change. The hardware is amazing. Yeah. Um, we'll get, we'll get through the, the software. They'll, they'll grow through it. And so it's been helpful for me to see, see uh, my own kids and see through their struggles. And even though they're going through something right now, know that, Hey, they're going to turn out great and believing in that. Right. Yep. It's helped me tremendously that way. And also I think in my writings, um, the books I've written to try to, again, I remember when I wrote the seven habits of highly effective teens, you know, it was a new idea at the time. No one had done it. And Simon and Schuster said, don't use cartoons. My publisher, they don't work. And I pushed back and I fought with them. And I, I, I thought, who am I to fight with Simon and Schuster, this big publisher and from New York. And they finally gave in and said, yeah, okay, we'll give the cartoons a try and all the visuals. And it came out and it was a big hit. And, um, but I remember when I was writing that book, uh, I put at the top of my computer, the word H-O-P-E, hope, you know? So I thought everything I'm writing, I want it to produce hope in the mind of the reader. Um, so I think that's, to answer your question, that's how it, it's manifested. Ooh, yeah, I, I think, uh, and this is no disrespect to the original uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I've talked to thousands of educators over the last 10 years, and so many of them have said, that the teens book has spoke more to them. And that may be, it's not about them thinking, how do I change my teens? Yeah. It means how, how you package it, how you communicated it, the sincerity that which you uh, approach each topic uh, mm -hmm. resonated in their heart more quickly and more powerfully than yeah. the other book, which is pretty neat. Um, so I think that's something that hopefully you hear, if you haven't, I think it's something you should know about that book. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> so when you grow up and again, I, I, I'll, I'll get off the subject, but one of the That's things okay. that I wonder when it comes to you, Sean, is that, um, you know, you were a quarterback at one of the most prestigious places to play football in the country. You then, you know, worked for some pretty cool firms that are in the business world. You went to Harvard business school. Like, did you know that you were always going to end up here at Franklin Covey? Was that always the goal? No, I didn't know. I mean, it was, uh, the company was started when I was in high school. Um, I, at Harvard, I went to Disney on my internship. I wanted to work at Disney <laughs> and I almost went there. I had an offer to go there and I almost went there, but I had this experience, Dustin, one time when I was, uh, deciding where to go, you know, Disney or my, my dad didn't put any pressure on it. He said, Hey, you can come back and work at Covey leadership center. That's right. That's nice. It was a small company, just, just getting started. 
And then he invited me to, uh, to this training he was doing. He goes, I mean, I'm going to train all these managers today. So I went to this event, probably um, 200 people, leaders packed into this room, senior letter, level leaders. And he was teaching on habit five. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And he does a role play where he acts like he's a teenager who wants to drop out of school. He always did the same role play. And he's talking to his father, right? And he said, I'm the teenager. I'm going to teach you how to listen with the intent to understand, not to reply. I'm the teenager. You're my father. We're going to role play. Okay. And then he'd say, oh, dad, I'm not going to college. There's no way. What a joke. And my friend Jay, I mean, he's, he's doing really well. And he dropped out of college. He's making, he's making 25 bucks an hour right now. I could drop out and be just like him. I just don't have a desire. And then he'd get the mic and walk around and say, and put it into somebody's face and they'd get it as if they were the dad, right? Role playing. And they'd say, um, well, you know, son, when I was your age, I remember there was a time I wanted to drop out of school too. My dad would grab the mic back and then he'd in the back of his, he'd act like he was a kid and say, yeah, I know dad's going to tell me his story again. Chapter two, verse 25. I know all about, you know, so he would just, he'd play the what's going on in the mind of the kid. He'd go around from person to person. No one could answer. No one was listening. And he would just he'd teach, reflect what the other person is saying and feeling in your own words. That's your job. And no one could get it right. He kept going around. They kept like probing. Hey, are you taking drugs? <laughs> you know, who you been talking to? Did your mom put you up to this? Or, and then finally somebody got it and said, um, and I remember thinking to myself, this is total chaos. This went for 30 minutes. And this is an hour and a half speech. It went for 30 minutes. And everybody was like going, thinking, what in the heck? Who is this Stephen Covey? And what is he doing? What is this role play? I want to hear a speech. And then finally, somebody answered correctly and said, so if I understand you, son, you feel you're really kind of, you're really an anxious about the future. And you feel like dropping out of school is the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly, dad. And then by learning to have empathy, it slowly unwinds, right? And they figure out that the kid wants to go to college. It's just that he took a test and he was on the fifth grade reading level and he's in 12th grade. That was the issue. But Ooh. it took listening to unravel that. And I watched this, Dustin, and it transformed the room. Everyone got it for the first time in their lives. People saw what it meant to listen and felt it. And it was transformational. Everyone just got quiet and said, oh, my goodness. I thought I was a good listener. I thought I was a good leader. I suck at it. <laughs> and I've learned what it means to listen for the first time. I watched that event unfold. Sorry for such a long story. That's great. But I, I saw it and I thought that that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Those leaders will never be the same again. And they will go home and talk with their spouse a totally different way and talk with their kids a totally different way and talk with their colleagues on a jugular issue. You know, they won't say, are you taking drugs? They'll say, if I understand you correctly, you feel this about this, right? Yep. And I said to myself, um, when I saw that, I'm, I want to work with this. I'm, go I'm going to Covey Leadership Center. And that's what persuaded me is that single event. Well, I think it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, 
part of the bias that's packed in that question from my worldview is like seeing the massive amount of income or uh, impact that Franklin Covey has had on so many people across the globe, right? And at that time, it was still the Covey leadership. So it was not like where we are today. So it was definitely a chance you're even taking on your own career, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a chance. How, how, how long? So again, that's, that's awesome. So I picture myself like you. Okay, and now I'm, now I'm going to jump in the deep end of the pool. and We're going to get after this. How long do you think it took for you to find your voice within the Covey leadership practice and now Franklin Covey um, to find it really deep in your heart? Because I know that's what your dad's obsession yeah. was. I know that's what your obsession is for people. So how long do you think it took to find your voice? I think it was pretty fast because I joined the company. I was working with the day timer, you know, the planner yep. division. <laughs> and at the same time, I was writing the Seven Habits Teens book. I think once I wrote that book, I kind of found my voice that it was, and then I went into product development. Um, and that was my voice is, is writing and developing products. And then that pulled me into education. So I didn't, I, I didn't feel like it took me that, that long to really find what I love to do. Yep. Well, again, I, the, the, I know from, I've been around you, I think I've known you probably 12 years now yeah. and your conviction and belief that we can positively change the world for so many communities is something that's palpable being around you. Um, and so I know that your voice is very much there. I was just curious on when it started. Uh, sure. One of the areas that I, I see you, I get a chance to see you light up in is anytime we're innovating, right? We're trying to think outside the box to solve problems. And our past crossed years ago when I was doing school turnaround work, and I had read your book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. And I had this strong conviction of like, schools need this, districts need this. Can you just tell us a little bit for the folks who don't know, what are just a high level view of like, what is the Four Disciplines of Execution and kind of what was the genesis of it? And then we can dive into yeah. maybe some practicality for educators. Yeah, but before I go there, I need to say, need to share with people how you got started with us <laughs> this is <laughs> you talk about <laughs> talk about be proactive uh Aston, I, I got a we we're up in a product development meeting <laughs> and i get a call and they and someone said hey there's some guy from missouri that wants to talk with you i said well do we have an appointment no they he just said he wants to talk with you and he insists i said well come all this way send him up <laughs> So you came up and you said, hey, I love what you're doing in education. I, I want to work for your company. And, um, and we said, wow, okay. And it was like a couple of years before we figured out the right position, but that's how it began because of your, uh, take, you taking initiative. So well, anyway. Hold on a sec. Before you answer then, because <laughs> I need to have it. That's hysterical. You turn this back around me. What I will say, Sean, the obsession I have with this organization is – we are about the head and heart of change, right? So we want to make sure that we're getting disciplined results and help people with the head, but we also want to help people with their heart, right? And we're about personal and professional growth. And that exudes, I mean, you could probably see me tear up when I think about it. That, that, is, that is our fight every day. And so coming to you is not really a risk. It was very much a, a calling of action, right? I had seen, yeah. If we spend too much time on the heart, like it's great, but we're not getting the impact we need. And I've been with organizations where it's very heady, really smart people and we're executing, getting great results, but we're hurting people and passion and suffering and joy is suffering because of it. And 
you and your organization and this organization that I'm so blessed to be a part of now, to me, the, the, what makes us different than every other organization is that we are unapologetically about both and going to be trying to be great in both and help enable people to be great in both. Yeah. So I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, it's we're, we make a good team. <laughs> so back to the original. Yeah. So, yeah, so for yeah. <laughs> yeah. I started with this. Um, it was about 20 years ago and I was leading product development at the time and uh, our CEO did a survey and it came back and it said, this was to a big survey across the country. And it came back and it said the top issue for leaders, the number one concern they have is execution. It wasn't developing strategy or having goals or dealing with people. It was like getting things done as a team or an organization. So that's where it began. So we really, I mean, we, they said, just go solve it. <laughs> we had a team and we looked at professors who had these great goal setting methodologies and we read everything we could and we thought we were going to buy something. We did a, we hired McKinsey consulting to help us try to crack the code on this. And from this, um, and then we had some really smart people, a guy named Jim Stewart in our company that worked for the Navy or worked in the Navy as a consultant for ours, for us, you know, with the Navy. Uh, he had some brilliant ideas and this kind of whole thing kind of came together and we, so over several years, we developed a methodology for getting things done as an organization. And we, we tested it on thousands of companies and work teams, and it works. Um, we felt like it was a breakthrough. And, it, and it's based on principles, just like the seven habits, you know, it's based on the principles of like initiative, habit one, be proactive, and begin with the end in mind is vision. Think win-win, the principle of mutual benefit, sharpen the saw, the principle of renewal, Four disciplines are based upon focus, principle that you got to narrow your focus from many things down to one or two things. Uh, leverage, the idea that some things are more powerful than others, some activities are more important than others. Engagement, that everyone needs to be engaged if you want to win. And then accountability, it's got to be a cadence of accountability to get something done. And so we felt like we, we cracked the code on this. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a methodology that works really well and we use it in schools now and we use it um you know marriott hotels uses it across across the world in all their hotels and and it works and these are these are simple practices that can help you whatever you're running whatever you're you can use it personally but it's really made for teams and organizations it can help you get get the job done and execute on that most important thing yeah. So to your point, I mean, I think well, when we first met, I think one of the things I'd shared with you was, uh, you know, spending hours upon hours within my school district, as well as other school districts, yeah. building these big, bold, long-term plans. Right. Yeah. But yet we had no ability to execute. How, how have we, or how, how has the four disciplines worked within a school? Like feel free to give me a rough yeah. example of, uh, helping them get better results because they've got this great strategy, but they're not moving the needle. How are we helping them do that? Yeah. Well, the four disciplines are focus on the wildly important. That's one. Two is act on the lead measures. Three is keep a compelling scoreboard. And four is create a cadence of accountability. And um, it, it works really well. But so just a, a high level story, and then I'll get to a couple of examples. That's okay. Great. Because <laughs> uh, this is a really good story. Um, so in the 50s, Dwight Eisenhower, the U.S. president, 
and NASA, they got together and, and he said, we got it. We're getting our butts kicked by the Soviets. We've got to win the space war, right? So they came up with their goal, which was lead the world in space exploration. And then if you look, they had 15 like paragraph long statements about what that meant. <laughs> they were beautifully written, right? Yep. And nothing happened <laughs> because how do you, how do you act on that? How do you lead the world in space exploration? And it was like hundreds of little details in these 15 statements. JFK comes along, John F. Kennedy, right? In 1961. And he says, our goal is to get a man to the moon and back by the end of the decade. <laughs> Suddenly NASA is like, wow, well, we can do that. Well, I don't know how we're going to do it, but that's, that's something to go after, right? And so they figure out real quickly, we know everything on how to do that except three things, navigation, life support, and propulsion. How do you get off the ground? You know, because of the pull of gravity. Um, but they put this disproportionate focus on those three things. They figured it out, 1969, they landed the moon. We had no business being on the moon in 1969. Hmm. Um, my phone has a hundred times more technology in it than that space lunar had, right? That's crazy. <laughs> And, uh, but they got galvanized because of the focus, right? Narrowed it down to one thing. It doesn't mean you don't have other priorities going on. It's like air traffic controller, right? No. Um, you've got many planes circling, but you land one plane at a time. Right. And most people have way too many goals. And most um, school improvement plans, if you're a principal, it's like, it's like Eisenhower. <laughs> you're not gonna get it done. There's too many things, it's beautiful. You'll write it and put it on the shelf. Districts, same thing. So many initiatives. Sean, they're all important though, right? So like, yeah. again, I know it's a little different. They're all important. Like, right. how can I say no to one if they're all important? Well, because you let them circle. <laughs> they're circling in the air. Yeah. But you got to land that one plane. And by doing that, it'll fix so many of the other problems, right? So NASA made the biggest strides they ever had during the eight-year period when they had that goal. In all these other areas that were so important, because they're going after that one goal. So if you're a district and your big goal is you've got to create more equity or our attendance is low or our behavior is bad or reading literacy is way too low, um, that becomes your moon and back, right? And watch what happens when you get that one thing done. Um, we call it, you know, you got you to gotta pull it out of the whirlwind. By the whirlwind, we mean... Um, it's hard to get goals done. You know why? Because your day job just consumes you. There's so much to do just to keep the lights on. If you're a teacher, so much to do just to keep up. How can you have any new goal on top of that? If you're a principal, how in the heck can you, you know, you've got parents calling you, you've got meetings, you've got kids you've got to work with, um, you've got a new curriculum, you've got edicts coming around the district and the state. And it's like, ah, I don't have time to do one new thing. But what we've learned is you've got to, that's your day job. That's your whirlwind. you got to pluck out of the whirlwind the wildly important goal, the wig, we call it, as opposed to a pig, which is a pretty important goal. Pull out the wig and say, if we did this one thing and got it right, that would, what, what one thing is that that would make all the difference? Okay. And, uh, and watch what happens. So, um, elementary school in Louisiana, um, Martin Pettijon Elementary. Kim Cummins is the principal. And she learns about the four disciplines. 
um, her school is entirely free and reduced lunch, the whole school, right? So a lot of challenges. Um, and she says, our biggest problem is attendance. If we could fix attendance, okay, before we can get to reading literacy, we got to get people here. She sets this goal. They make it right when you walk into the school right there, increase our, um, you know, attendance from X to X. I, I forget the numbers, but it was a really high number, like 98%. And they made that the goal. And then the, each classroom had their own goal and each student had their own goal and they were all part of it. And there were public scoreboards, right? And of course, within a year, a year later with that kind of disproportionate focus, they solved the problem. The next year they focused the four disciplines on literacy and they made remarkable strides um, in getting uh, their proficiency up across the board in all grade levels at all different classes and uh, different groups and subgroups. Um, she told me one story about a little boy named Mario. Um, his name was not Mario, I'll call him Mario. His name started with an M though, so I can remember it. And he, he woke up one morning as a first grader. He knew he had a goal to, you know, an attendance goal for his class. He wanted to help the class meet it. His mom wouldn't wake up. She was at a late night party or something, but wouldn't get up. He goes out, starts looking for a ride. <laughs> He finds in his neighborhood, he finds some trucker and he hitchhikes. The trucker's not sure. He'd seen the kid before. He gives him a ride to school. He gets there. He drops him off. The principal says, you don't even know who he is. You're not as, you know, you're not related to him. So she talks to the little boy, Mario. What are you doing, Mario? Don't talk to strangers, number one. But why are you hitchhiking? He said, because we had a goal for as a class. And I, I wanted to help us meet our goal. <laughs> and, um, but that's the kind of power that you get when you galvanize around a goal, the kind of behavior that changes. Um, so you know, my advice to schools is you've got far too many initiatives. Keep your day job going. You have to keep the lights on. But pull out of the whirlwind that one thing that if you did could make all the difference. Maybe it's parent engagement. Maybe it's behavior. Maybe it's math scores, reading scores, um, whatever it might be for you. And just, and to watch the power of what can happen. Yeah. It seems, what seems unique to me about this is that, uh, through the system, instead of it being just an execution system where, you know, yeah, I know I got to improve my reading. Let's go. It seems like you've, you've gamified it in a way where yeah. the kids recognize what the game is and that they're having fun trying to accomplish it. The teachers know it. They're having fun trying to accomplish it or, you know, somewhat fun. Right. And then principal school, then maybe at the district level, uh, how do you create that kind of gamification feel? What are the secrets of that? Yeah. The secrets are discipline three, uh, create a compelling scoreboard <laughs> because people play differently when they're keeping score, right? We've all watched like pickup games, pick up basketball, and you can tell if they're keeping score or not, right? <laughs> when they're not, they're just kind of like loose, goofing off. And then suddenly they're keeping score. Everyone gets really serious. The level of play goes way up, right? So scoreboarding is a really important thing. It's a public scoreboard. You, um, my friend told me a story about when he was at a game. He was down in the South. He was at a football game. And everybody was involved in the game. It was really close. And suddenly the lights went out on the scoreboard. And they couldn't get it going. So they just kept playing the game about the scoreboard. He said, he looked around after 10 minutes. He said, no one was watching the game. <laughs> no one cared anymore. 
the players kind of were, but no, no one else in the stands cared. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a score. They didn't know how much time. They didn't know who was ahead, right? Yep. And it's kind of the same way in a school. You've got to, you've got to scoreboard the things that are important. Public scoreboard. Simple, public, easy to see. You can tell in five seconds whether or not you're winning or losing. So we go in and we teach schools this process, and they, they create the most amazing scoreboards, and they cascade them throughout the, the school, you know. Um, improve our reading and then you see that in the classroom they come up with their own scoreboards and the kids have their own scoreboards and there's something magical about um, you know looking and meeting with your accountability buddy your fifth grade student you meet with your buddy and they say okay your goal was to read you know 80 books this year and last week your goal was to read one book how come you didn't do it dude (laughs) right and you go back and forth and um, it's all there on a scoreboard, right? And a scoreboard can be as simple as just having boxes and putting an X in it or having red, yellow, green or having a thermometer, right? right. Showing your, the attendance in the classroom. But it just engages people. Scoreboards engage people, especially when you let people create them. You don't hand them to people. Yep. Right? One, one of the things that, um, you know, I when I met you 12 years ago, I told you, uh, I really wanted to start doing this with the districts and schools I was working with. Yeah. And you kind of laughed, said, go try it, or, you know, dive in. That's, that's a long time ago. Now we've worked with lots of districts. One of the challenges that I noticed um, that leaders uh, struggled with implementing was that cadence of accountability, right? So the habit four, yeah. what, what's some advice you've given folks over the years to help get better at that or to just help them understand why discipline four is so important. Yeah. Well, my co-author um, talk, tells a story about his daughter and he, he said, you can use the car if you clean it every week, right? And every Saturday we'll check to see if it's clean. And if it's clean, you can keep using the cars. Isn't that a great win-win? She <laughs> says, yeah. So first two weeks they do it, the car's spotless. They keep doing it, it's spotless. And then one week he went on a trip and he was away for two Saturdays in a row. He gets back. They go on Saturday, the following Saturday, the car's a mess. And uh, she says, oh, are we still doing that? <laughs> you know, in just two weeks, the cadence, accountability broke down in two weeks, right? And it's, this, it's the same thing. Um, no one thinks you're serious about something unless there's a consistency. So we, we believe this, this discipline for it's a discipline because it's hard create a cadence of accountability once a week you've got to account you can go for more than once a week if you want but at least once a week you got to meet around your scoreboard let's just say you have a goal to reduce suspensions this year maybe and we've seen schools do this some schools have been in really bad situations right where they have so many suspensions or behavior problems they make this their goal to get behavior under control and um you you get together, if you're a principal, you'd get together with your teachers and your other key leaders, administrators, and say, here's our wig. How are we doing on it, right? Once a week. What can we do this week to move the scoreboard, all right? And uh, you do that at every level. So you have the kids doing that as well. And accountability is powerful, but it's hard. And most people don't account where they start, like my friend's daughter, right? You do it for a few weeks and you forget and then it breaks down. 
So when you meet, um, you don't need to make these long. We call them wig sessions, wildly important goal sessions. And you can have them be really short, um, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. You could you can combine staff items before or after, but have a have a, a moment where you go over the scoreboard and see how you're doing, find out what you can do to move the score. Uh, I think, I mean, something you said that, that hits me is it's no accident that these four items were no. The word we chose was discipline, right? I mean, if you want to be great, if you want to, I mean, I hope people listen to this podcast. Everybody wants to be great. They want to be a part of building great organizations. Um, It's all hard work. Every, every guest we've had talks about the, the work and that's what it takes if you want to be great. And so, you know, as I look at this, I'll just say personally, um, I would not have shown up at your doorstep without this as much as I, and I was that guy that, you know, uh, when we had Franklin Covey stores and planners, I was a really cool kid on Friday nights. As I was a teacher, I'd go to a local mall and I'd like make friends with the Covey reps because I love this work so much. Um, but it was still very personal and it was heartfelt. The disciplines here, I feel like are life-changing for people personally, but also school districts. How can, uh, if I'm a superintendent or a principal listening right now, or a teacher, how can I, investigate this further to start realizing how to start going, you know, using this with my school. Sure. Well, um, a few things you can do. I mean, this, we're doing this in, you know, 2000 schools now and we're getting great results. Of course, people implement with different levels of fidelity, right? Right. When people are, are doing it with at least a decent level of fidelity, it works really well. How could it not work? How, how could it not work if, you know, you set a goal to in, in improve reading in your school and it's a public goal and it's the one thing and the classroom has a goal too, they've set, they've set themselves in alignment with that. And then the kids do, how could it not work? Right. Yep. So I think that you, you can learn more by, uh, we, we have the book four disciplines of execution. That's been out the second edition just launched right now. It's out in the market. You can buy it on Amazon. You can read that book. That'd be one idea. You could call a leader in me school that's doing it well. We'd, we'd love to connect you with anyone if that would help to so get some real life examples. We're coming out with a new book um, just in the next month, Four Disciplines of Execution for Educators. <laughs> um, just because we started hearing so many great stories and examples from districts and schools about how this has helped them. So you can, you can pick up that book as well. Um, it'll be out shortly, but, um, you know, and, uh, we, we had one principal that said, um, from California and he said, well, I, I love this four disciplines, but I'm not going to do it in my school unless I know it works. So he, he made a public goal and said to the school, I'm going to try this methodology. I'm going to hold myself accountable to all of you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, um, so he set a goal to go from a cat from couch to 5k there's actually an app called couch to 5k um and he he put it like in three months he wanted to get in really good shape and his accountability partner was the school and his wife and he got to eat a big bowl of ice cream if he uh if he achieved his goal right so the school got really excited they say hey looking kind of chubby today you better keep running stuff like that but he did this and every morning announcements every week, he would announce how he's doing, how he's losing weight, getting in shape. And he runs the 5K, does really well. School celebrates. 
and he and then he goes to the school and said this really worked it worked for the first time in my life i'm in really good shape using this methodology and so we're going to do it as a school right so it came right from his heart um it was genuine um but that's the that's the power of of this methodology you got to and just what we teach in leader me dustin right is it works because the adults in the school model what they want the kids in the school to do. So before we, uh, here, here, we're going to end differently with you. Uh, as I, I warned you earlier, uh, I've been in touch with one of your children to ask some great parenting and family yeah. stories. And okay. so yeah. we're going to end the podcast with that. So before we sure. get here, I'm going to ask what is usually my last question, which is, as, as you kind of look at the education landscape right now, knowing what leaders are struggling yeah. with, what's, what's one bit of advice that's on your heart to encourage them to implement some change in their life to get better either as a person or as a professional? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, getting through COVID has been hard. Um, I've got a niece that's a teacher and she, I started talking to her about it and she just broke down, started crying about how hard it's been how she loves teaching and about how she's thinking of quitting because it's been so hard. I just, just the ups and downs and wearing the mask and dealing with kids and um, parents at all different phases of being angry or with this or that. Right. And um, so I, and then talking with a lot of uh, district supers and, and principals and teachers, and there's just a lot of personal mental wellness issues. Right. And uh, so my, my advice, seriously, is you just, you can't um, help others until you help yourself to some degree. And I think it's just really important, self-care, sharpening the saw, habit seven, is really important right now. And um, so I just, I would encourage you, if you're a teacher or a super or a principal, to take care of yourself first. Put on your oxygen mask first, <laughs> and then you'll be able to have an ex- enough a clear head thinking to help somebody else sitting next to you with their oxygen mask. And so um, I think people in education in general are so caring. They care about other people. Sometimes they neglect themselves and then you just don't have the strength to deliver. Right. So, you know, get in shape physically, get good rest, eat well, um, you know, do, do things that keep you active, manage your stress mentally, keep reading, keep growing and developing, go to conferences, um, challenge yourself, get outside your comfort zone mentally, right? Socially, emotional, uh, nurture relationships, spend time with the people that matter most to you. Um, it's slow and fast, okay? Spending time with people that you love is slow. It takes a lot of time and it might take away from work, but in the end, it's much faster because the healthy heart that it gives you, right? And then spiritually, by spiritual, I mean, what's your motivation, your in inspiration your drive uh, just connect with things that inspire you it might be getting out in nature it might be reading inspiring literature or music um, or or write writing a personal mission statement right things that really ignite your purpose so i just encourage you to don't don't be scared about taking time for yourself because it's the vehicle through which you have strength to help other people yeah, well, Sean, I appreciate it. You're, you clearly, your heart is very, very much out there for all of us. So thanks for diving in with us today. And I would say any educator 
who is aspiring to continue to see change and real impact in their school when the the book again we hopefully it's in the next month right sean yeah. uh four disciplines of Ex execution for educators comes out i would absolutely prioritize that uh, immediately this summer um so with that before i let you go and i'm sure you've got a hard stop here shortly i've got to ask good. some of these questions from nathan all right uh so yeah. Little known fact, I can't remember how I met Nathan, either you brought him to the office one day or we did something at your house. And I'm like, this is the coolest kid I've ever met in my life. I'm just going to be friends with them. He was a sophomore in high school then, right? Yeah, uh -huh. And so I have just assumed we're best friends way too early. I'm like, buddy, the elf that way, right? <laughs> and so you're probably like, why did you talk to Dustin? When did you talk to Dustin? Well, it turns out it's been a good thing because I, I reached out to Nathan and he texted me back and have some questions for you. Okay. I'll put him under the bus. I'll throw him under the bus first. So he wants uh, he, to tee you up with uh, that time that Nathan played dead on the baseball field. Can you tell me about that time? Do you remember that time? <laughs> yes. Nathan, you know him. He's, he's incredibly outgoing, right? And friendly yeah. and talkative. When he was a kid, he was so shy. He was so shy. I couldn't get him to go to school. He'd go every other day. It was a war. I'd have to rip off his hands off the seat to, carry him into the school. Um, he wouldn't do anything, wouldn't participate in anything. And I got him to sign up for baseball finally. And we got to the first practice, okay, second grade, gets out of the car, sees the coach, the other players, he gets so nervous, so social anxiety, falls on the ground and plays dead. <laughs> Literally. Dustin, he laid on the ground for one hour, 20 yards away from the team practicing. And I'm like, Nathan, what in the heck are you doing? This is so embarrassing. I went and got the coach. Coach goes, hey, Coach Smith here, Nathan, it's, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Laser, uh, no sign of life. Did that for one hour. The practice ended. He gets up, <laughs> goes into the car like nothing had happened. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this kid. Um, and he had, he had a really tough go at it. But then he, um, I think part of the problem was my wife and I felt like he was insufficient, mm -hmm. kind of developed a negative paradigm about Nathan and his abilities. And then I had an epiphany one day where I kind of felt condemned by my conscience for treating him that way. It was really a remarkable experience where I kind of saw who he, who he was. And so I stopped protecting him and treating him like he was insufficient. And then he had a big breakthrough one day where he gave a speech at his leadership day, leader in me school. And he did well, almost fainted while he was doing it, almost played dead. <laughs> But worked out of it and and then just didn't then just took off, right? And became this remarkable kid, a lot of compassion because he had terrible social anxiety as a kid. So that's the play dead story. Well, it's amazing because <laughs> I mean he is super I've only known him as the outgoing, ambitious yeah. kid who was student body president who performed in front of his whole school. Like I've only known the opposite of that. So yeah. that's incredible. Um, I've got a lot of parenting stories. I'm going to have to ask you off the record to figure out how do I make sure <laughs> I learn from that for my kids. Yeah. Um, so anybody who knows you also knows that uh, horses seem to be a big part of your family um, and the nonprofit work you're doing. And so Nathan asked me about uh, to ask you about the first time your daughters bought their first horse or got yeah. their first horse. Is that striking <laughs> about with you? Yeah. Okay. So my, my, uh, my daughter, Victoria loved animals and we said no to animals for like five years. Finally we gave in. So it was a cat then a dog. 
<laughs> then a chinchilla, then a goat, then ducks, rabbits. And finally she said, I want to get a horse. And my wife said, over my dead body. <laughs> well, we made the mistake of saying, if you'll pay half, we'll pay the other half, thinking it's three grand, the horse she wanted. Yeah. So she weighs $1,500 and we had to comply. So she buys a horse and I'm thinking, this is so stupid. And I'm coming home from work. <laughs> my wife says, hey, we got a new horse. I said, well, where'd we put it? We got some temporary fencing. It's in the lot right next door to us. We're renting it from our neighbor. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, a horse. I come around the corner around my house. And right when I come around the corner, this horse that's tied up to this temporary fencing that's in a big circle, right? Yep. Rears up, starts running wildly in a circle, <laughs> knocks out Victoria. <laughs> she's laying on the ground. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if she's dead or not. And this horse piles up and is just like in a weird contorted position. And the fencing is all piled up in a huge pile. It's just rearing up. And I'm thinking, what in the heck have we done? <laughs> that was the start of horses. And now we have 20 of them. And we run a, we run a foundation, a charity. So it started off as kind of an individual hobby. And then we found it was so, we start, my, my girls would take people that were hurting, were struggling, anxiety, depression, abuse, and trauma and stuff, and start taking them on horseback rides in the mountains. It was so therapeutic and so helpful um, the, the girls would come to us and say, it, it changed my life. So we got this idea of creating a charity called Bridal Up Hope. And now we have uh, 20 horses. It's a 501c3 foundation. And yep. we have hundreds of girls that are going through every week that are struggling. And it, and it helps them tremendously. We teach them horseback riding, the seven habits and service. That's awesome. It's yeah. funny to know that, like, how, again, I know the later time of, like, your family's passion for horses, your family's passion for service with horses. And to start with a horse that was going wild that may have knocked one of your daughters out uh, and you stayed with it. I think my wife and I may have walked out of the horse business altogether at that point. Um, yeah, I, hate, I, I hated horses as a kid. <laughs> uh, last, last one. I got bit by a horse, a whole nother thing. Uh, last one. And then I'll let you have your day. Um, apparently Wyatt is a character. So I yeah. got two things with Wyatt real quickly and you can decide how quickly to go through it. So Wyatt started building a scooter ramp in the backyard and apparently he has some pretty epic one-liners. And so I don't know what is podcast worthy in terms of what's allowed to be shared here, but that's how I was told to tee you up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wyatt is a uh, most creative kid you've ever seen. He's, he's like Huckleberry Finn. He won't wear shoes. He won't go to school. <laughs> he's a leader <laughs> so um so he's really he's really hard to manage but he's but he'll plan things like all of a sudden 45 kids last friday showed up in our backyard <laughs> and you know he's a seventh grader and he planned this big airsoft war you know the airsoft bb's yeah everybody right. came in their full regalia <laughs> with you know with camouflage with their airsoft guns and he he organizes stuff like this and, um, you know, one time he's, he built this big ramp in the backyard. He said, what, I said, what do you want for your birthday, Wyatt? And he said, lumber. <laughs> okay. And then I bought him all this lumber and then he goes on YouTube and he figures out how to make a, a scooter ramp, a huge one, but he gets, he gets tired of using it as a scooter ramp. And after a while he's gets the four wheeler and a rope and a tube 
and then he buys a blow up pool and then he starts going on the four-wheeler and pulling people and launching them off this ramp like 30 feet in the air to landing in the pool <laughs> so anyway yeah he, he's a he's a great character he's got great one-liners so i've been recording these on my phone my notes app for yeah. years he comes up with the most crazy things you know like uh one day he said hey dad stop picking your nose while you drive it's like drunk driving <laughs> just random things yeah I'm, I'm tired of of talking about the nba let's talk about clowns <laughs> all right what <laughs> just just crazy one-liners um, oh. so anyway i but i, I mean, enjoy him i the fact that like you didn't ask more questions you just got your kid lumber is a whole nother thing you're like <laughs> sure son it is your birthday you know here you go <laughs> oh all right. Well, I can't wait. I know I've met Wyatt briefly, probably when he was a lot younger. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta see him again at some point soon. Now that travels back, um, Sean, this was awesome. This has been my favorite conversation I've had yet. Uh, obviously, we've known each other for a long time, but yeah. I just appreciate you sharing your heart and um, your head with us. So, thank you very much. We hope you, we can convince you to be a regular contributor here. So, yeah, so be happy to out with us. Yeah, and we'll have. We're just scratching the surface on stories. I'm confident of that. So. That would be a huge honor for us. So thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, you're, you're welcome, Dustin. And I, I think the Jazz are going to do it this year. <laughs> it's our constant debate. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I don't cheer against the Jazz. Let's be very clear. I do not cheer against the Jazz. But uh, yeah, I we'll see. Playoffs are a different animal. Congrats on the regular season. <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> All right. Thanks, Sean. Right. See ya. Bye. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.